I'd like to welcome everyone to our final program on the global environment distinguished lecture for the quarter. This, tonight's lecture is co-sponsored by um, the South Asia Language and Area Center and the Committee on Southern Asian Studies. I'd also like to thank the Donnelly Foundation and the staff of CIS and PGE for making this possible. Uh, tonight we'll hear from Professor Raman Sukumar, who is Professor of Ecology at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore and Honorary Director of the Asian Elephant Research and Conservation Center. He's author of The Asian Elephant, Ecology and Management, Elephant Days and Nights, 10 Years with the Indian Elephant, and The Living Elephants, Evolutionary Ecology, Behavior, and conservation. His current work is a cultural history of the Asian elephant that will be published later this year. Professor Sukumar is past chairman of the Asian Elephant Specialist Group of the World Conservation Union. He's a fellow of the Indian Academy of Sciences and the Indian National Science Academy and recipient of a number of prestigious international awards for conservation, including the Presidential Award of the Chicago Zoological Society, the Whitley Gold Award for International Nature Conservation, um, the Order of the Golden Ark, and the International Cosmos Prize. Tonight, he'll be speaking to us on elephants, gods, and people, the cultural history of the Asian elephant. Please join me in welcoming Professor Sukumak. very kind introduction and for inviting me to give this lecture uh, this evening. Um, I'm actually um, also happy to know that I'm a senior fellow at the Chicago Council of, on Global Affairs, something that seems to have been missed, but uh, <laughs> it seems to be a new position that I've acquired recently. Uh, this evening I'll be uh, speaking on uh, a subject uh, which I'm not really sure whether I'm fully qualified to speak or not because uh, as an ecologist, uh, whether I can tread on the toes of historians. So if there are any historians among in the audience today, and if I say something that is probably incorrect uh, or, or erroneous, uh, please bear with me and please correct me uh, later. <laughs> uh, uh, I have been studying elephants for uh, uh, 30 years now. And uh, what has actually fascinated me, you know, apart from the legendary intelligence of the elephant, uh, the fact it's a very large mammal, um, you know, with enormous uh, requirements, um, you know, it's a very, very sensitive animal in which recently scientists have discovered that elephants actually have, an, uh, possibly have an awareness of self, which is really a trait that is found among humans, uh, uh, other primates, and maybe dolphins and whales. It's not really been found in any other, any other species. But what's also fascinated me is the fact that uh, elephants have had a long cultural association with people in Asia. And this is an association that goes back at least 5,000 years, maybe even earlier. Uh, elephants have carried our heaviest burdens uh, through history. They have fought wars for us. Uh, at the same time, the elephant has been an amb ambassador of peace. And the elephant has also been a burden to people. There's a lot of conflict between elephants and humans and over agriculture and, and so on. And uh, therefore, I thought that in today's context of trying to conserve elephants. You know, people try to come up with new conservation paradigms for protecting elephants, is that we need to have the historical context. 
uh, fully understood, you know, adequately understood. Uh, because many of the discussions that we, um, you know, indulge in today, our discussions have al already taken place in the past uh, in our history. So we really need to understand the history of the elephant-human relationship over time. And uh, I can only give you nuggets of that history in this, in this given lecture. Uh, when I give a talk on the elephant in the past, there's one question in invariably comes from the audience, and that is, why is it that the Asian elephant has been tamed and the African elephant has not been tamed? And uh, why this difference between Africa and Asia, you know, in the cultural relationship between uh, you know, an animal and humans? And I'll, I'll, I'll briefly touch upon this topic uh, later. It's not that the African elephant has not been tamed. It had been tamed, but this is a culture that died out quite early, died out about 2,000 years ago, and I'll, I'll briefly touch upon this uh, aspect. So when we talk about the elephant culture of Asia, you know, we uh, normally imagine a, a gorgeously caparisoned elephant like this, uh, you know, uh, participating in a, in, a, in, a, in a religious festival or a cultural festival in uh, India or in Thailand or in, you know, uh, you know, Cambodia or wherever. And this is not a, a culture that is confined to India, although in this lecture I largely confine my talk to, to India. But possibly what um, really defines um, the peak of uh, the cultural uh, the, the cultural icon that the elephant has uh, uh, has attained is that is that of Ganesha, undoubtedly that of Ganesha. And um, Ganesha, interestingly, is not just an Indian god or a Hindu god, as commonly believed, but actually a pan-Asian god. And you have representations of Ganesha, you know, in many many other Asian countries, in uh, in Sri Lanka, in uh, you know, in Burma, in uh, Cambodia, in uh, Indonesia, and also in China and as far as uh, uh, in East Asia as Tibet. As uh, Japan, and uh, therefore the, the crucial question that I will try to answer at the end, you know, after going through my lecture on the cultural uh, relationship of the Asian elephant and humans, is what's the significance of the elephant culture in Asia and the contrast with that of Africa? Um, I'll actually begin my um, my tour of the cultural history uh, with from Central India, and Central India is where uh, we have the earliest depictions of elephants. So in this uh, in this uh, top picture here, you see a, what are called as rock engravings or petroglyphs. And this petroglyph, this picture is uh, from a rock shelter in the state of Orissa in Central India. And uh, from what I have, uh, I know I have visited several rock, sh rock shelters in, in Central India, including Bimbetka, and the picture below the, the elephant painting below, which is actually quite a masterpiece. It is from more recent times, pr probably from medieval times, is from the uh, famous rock sh shelter of Bimbetka in Central India. But this is uh, possibly the, the picture on top. Possibly is the oldest uh, representation of the Asian elephant in art. This is the oldest that I could ever find. And I have checked with uh, historians, archaeologists in uh, Orissa, and uh, they say it can be safely dated to the Mesolithic, approximately six to 7,000 years uh, uh, BCE. So it's almost uh, close to you know, eight or, eight or 9,000 years before present. And um, the elephant is depicted along with a a range of other animals, and these paintings have, some of these paintings, as you can see here below, have the same vigor as the uh, famous uh, rock art of uh, mammoths, for instance, in uh, France and in Spain. And this is a very interesting painting of the elephant. If you look at, um, you know, the relief is broken with a, a kind of a triangle, a, sh a triangular shape in the, in the, in the, you know, within the body, it seems to indicate that the artist was trying to show the best possible um, location in which you have to, by to to kill an elephant, you know. Uh, you have a very similar uh, uh, painting in, uh, in Spain uh, at Pindal, in which you have a mammoth uh, with, a, with a heart shaped 
showing the actual probably lo the lo actual location of the heart. And this might have a similar significance too. Now the elephant, now the question is when did the elephant-human relationship uh, really begin? And the earliest evidence that we have uh, for the taming of the elephant uh, goes back 4,600 years to the Harappan civilization. And um, this goes back to the seals of the Harappan civilization. If you look at this uh, seal, for instance, you will find that uh, there seems to be something like a cloth uh, draped over the back of the animal, indicating that this may have been a tamed animal. Uh, there are also, there's also uh, Jonathan Kenoyer from the University of uh, Wisconsin at Madison also has, a, has found a terracotta elephant mask uh, with, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, color markings on it. And this, again, seems to be an indication that the elephant uh, was not just tamed, but also used to a limited extent during the Harappan times. Um, I will come to another figure, the so-called Pasupati figure. Therefore, uh, it's highly likely that the elephant had been, on the other hand, we should remember that the Indus civilization actually lay to the, um, to, you know, to the northwestern extreme, extremity of the distribution of the Asian elephant. And therefore, it's almost certain that the elephant had been tamed in the Indian subcontinent prior to the Harappan period. Now, this is the so-called famous uh, Pasupati seal, uh, kind of a proto-Shiva. Uh, archaeologists, historians uh, depict this as a proto-Shiva, in which you have a horned deity uh, surrounded by four animals, including the elephant. So on the top left, you see the elephant. And uh, uh, the, top, uh, the, the, uh, the bottom left, you see a tiger. And uh, on the right side, you see a rhino, a rhino and a buffalo. And um, therefore, there seems to be a certain connotation of sacredness associated with the Pasupati seal. And this is about 2,500 year, uh, 2000, 2000 BCE. Um, the Indus or the Harappan civilization was spread over an area much larger than that of either uh, Iraq or uh, Mesopotamia or the, or the Egyptian civilization in the Nile. And uh, therefore, the, the total population of elephants at this time, you know, 4,500 or 5,000 years ago, it, elephant would not have been necessarily very abundant in the, in, the Indus, uh, in, the, in the Indus Valley region. You know, bones of elephants are found at various Indus sites. But uh, given the climatic condition, given the nature of the vegetation, the elef elephant distribution could still have been relatively sparse. Not, not, necessarily, um, not necessarily very dense uh, you know, in, in this region. Uh, from the Indus period, we now come to the Vedic period. And the Vedic period uh, begins with the arrival of the so-called Aryans from, the, from Central Asia into, into Northwest India. And um, if you look at the, the, the Vedas, the, there are basically the four Vedas, uh, of which the Rig Veda, the, the Rig Veda, which is, goes back to about 1500 uh, BCE, is the earliest of the Rig Vedas. Now, the Rig Veda, the, uh, the Vedas refer to the elephant as, a, as an animal, a creature with a hand, a mrigahasti, or a creature with a hand, which is a very apt description for an elephant. Because here, the Aryans had come from central India. It's basically a house-based culture. They had never seen or encountered elephants before. And once they come into the Indian subcontinent, when they encounter elephants, the only name, that the first name that they can think of for a for a creature like the elephant is an animal with a hand. And uh, this is Mrigahasti. So the earliest references to the elephants in the Vedas are by the term Mrigahasti. And uh, there's no indication you know, 15, uh, around 1500 BCE that the elephant had been tamed. There's no reference in the, in the Rig Veda for the taming of the elephant. Uh, that um, uh, although the elephant had been tamed by the Indus people prior to that, but the Vedic people 
did not um, adopt the elephant, uh, the elephant culture of taming the elephant around, you know, when they first came into the Indian subcontinent. And the horse still remained the most important animal in the Vedas. And this is very clear. Although some of the later Vedas, such as the Atharva Veda around 800 BC, um, certainly indicate that tame elephants were known uh, by, the, by this time. So it was a gradual process of uh, a shift from the horse-based culture to the, uh, to the, uh, the elephant-based culture. And this can be seen in the Vedic god Indra. All references to the, you know, to the um, Vedic god Indra um, in the Rig Veda and all the other Vedas is to Indra riding a horse. You know, Indra's mount is a horse, it's not an elephant. And it's only much later that Indra rides the fabled uh, Airavata. Uh, so this is uh, at, a, at a much later, later period. So this, in some sense, indicates a transition from the horse-based culture to the elephant-based uh, based culture, which may have occurred around uh, um, 2,800 years ago or, or, th or thereabouts. Now, when, uh, the, when the, the elephant was tamed, obviously, um, the, the Aryans realized the importance of the elephant, uh, not only just as a, as a beast of burden, but also as a, um, as a, as a possible use, as a battle tank you know, in, the, in their wars. And in some of the earlier Vedic literature, um, you, you, don't, you don't come across any references to the use, use of elephants in war. But um, in the later Vedas, there is a hint that the elephant may have been used in, in, in minor conflicts. And um, by the time you come to uh, the great Indian epics, which I'm not dealing with here, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, there are plenty of descriptions in the Ramayana and the Mahabharata of the use of elephants in war. Now, I realize that some of these references to the use of elephants could have been, let, uh, uh, you know, could have been later interpolations. And therefore, during the earliest Mahabharata times, the elephant may have been actually used only to a limited extent. And uh, these uh, descriptions you know, became much uh, exaggerated you know, with uh, interpolations uh, in, in, in later centuries. But central to the concept of the army in ancient India is that of the Chaturangani Sene. Chaturangani Sene refers to the four divisions of the Indian army. And these four divisions, and there are very detailed descriptions of this in the Mahabharata. Uh, of, uh, and of course, uh, there's a lot of hyperbole when it comes to the total numbers of uh, foot soldiers or chariots and so on in each unit. Uh, but, uh, but leaving that aside, the, the four divisions of the army in ancient India were the foot soldiers, the chariots, cavalry, and elephants. And chariots were the ones that started dying out first. The, and if you actually see this uh, representation of the four divisions of the army from, the, from a Hoysala sculpture of the 13th century in Karnataka, this is in a temple called Somnathpur, you'll actually see the three divisions very clearly. You see elephants below, you see the cavalry above that, and then uh, you see the foot soldiers uh, you know, at, at this level. But you also have a few chariots represented here. Therefore, the use of chariots may, be, may not be directly in war, but chariots were perhaps used uh, you know, in, for ceremonial occasion. And therefore, the use of chariotry did not die out completely 2,000 years ago, as many historians have, have, uh, have imagined. But on the other hand, the chariots seem to have survived, you know, at least uh, certainly up to the Hosala period. But maybe very, very limited use um, in, uh, uh, you know, for ceremonial purposes. Therefore, the earliest use of elephant in war, I would date at approximately the 6th century BC. Uh, that, from, from all the evidence that I could see, that the earliest uh, uh, regular use or uh, organized use of elephants in war was probably around the 6th century BC. Now, I'll briefly take you to, a, um, uh, to a, an ancient elephant lore 
called the Gajasastra. And um, you know, a fairly sophisticated science of the elephant had started developing uh, by about uh, the mid, middle of the first uh, millennium BC. And uh, the Gajasastra, the elephant lore, is traced to a mythical sage, Palkapya, who is believed to have lived in uh, eastern India around 5th century BC. The Gajasastra actually contains wonderful descriptions of elephants. And um, it has this detailed descriptions of elephant morphology, of elephant growth, uh, development of behavior with age, and, and so on and so forth, and also of must in elephants. In fact, there are lots of descriptions in the Gajasastra of must or rut in elephants. Now, I'll just uh, take one sentence uh, from the Gajasastra. Um, this is from um, a rendition called the Matangalila, and in which, referring to uh, the, the rutting in elephants, the, in, the, in the male elephants, it says that excitement, swiftness, odor, love passion, complete fluorescence of the body, wrath, prowess, and fearlessness are declared to be the eight excellences of must. Now, for 2,000 years or, or later, you know, I don't think we have found anything better than this. You know, <laughs> absolutely nothing. And we've had wonderful work on done on African elephants on musk. In fact, in Africa, a lot of researchers uh, working on elephants were completely confused about the whole musk, uh, the incidence of musk. They thought that female elephants also came into musk. It was not until 1980 that they also realized that the African male elephant came into musk. And then with all the scientific work that we have done today, we know that there is a, a sexual significance to, to musk in elephants, and male elephants becomes much more aggressive when it comes into musk. It has dominance over other males. It wanders much more widely in search of females for mating. And Essentially, must has been explained within the framework of game theory by modern scientists. But this single sentence, this single sentence explains it all. I don't, I don't think there is anything beyond this. And this goes back to ancient elephant lore. It is just being rediscovered today. Uh, in fact, uh, there's another little interesting passage in this, which I have not uh, put up a slide on this, where the, the, the Gajasastra, the elephant lore, talks about differences in the must, the nature of must fluid in a younger elephant and an older elephant. It says that a young elephant would secrete must fluid that is sweet smelling, and an older elephant would secrete must fluid that is very foul smelling. And a few years, some years ago, I brought this to uh, the notice of uh, some of my my colleagues, uh, Bets Rasmussen, late Bets Rasmussen, who's no more, who was in uh, Portland, Oregon, and she, along with an Indian colleague of mine, actually analyzed the must, the nature of the must fluid secretion in young elephants and older elephants, and found there is a chemical difference. Young elephants secreted sweet-smelling esters and alcohols, and the old elephants secreted foul-smelling ketones, like acetone. And therefore, there was a scientific basis, and they published a paper in Nature on this uh, about four or five years ago. That's the Gajasasara. Okay, now, so, so that is a sophisticated science of the elephant that had started developing in ancient India by this time. Now, we just go fast forward to the third century, where uh, you know, and Western historians have written a lot about this, about Alexander and the Alexander of Macedon, Alexander the Great, great who, you know, was uh, invaded, um, tried to invade India from the northwest. Um, he had conquered Persia before that, and um, you know, coming through the Hindu Kush mountains, he had set his sights on conquering India, and his aim was to go unto the ends of the earth. Um, he came up to the Jhelum River, the Hydaspes River, in 326 BC. And he encountered a, a, a local satrap or a small ruler called Porus, who fielded 80 elephants against him. And Alexander's army de defeated this. Actually, Alexander knew about elephants. It's not that Alexander did not have elephants. Alexander actually had elephants with him, because some of the local rulers had offered tribute of elephants to him. He had some elephants with him. But he did not use these elephants in this war, in this, uh, in this battle. But strangely, 
something happened after the uh, after his victory over Porus. Something very interesting happened. The Macedonians they advanced further up to the Bias River in the northwest, and at that at the Bias River there was a revolt among the Greek soldiers. The soldiers refused to go any further. Megasthenes, uh, the Greek uh, ancient Greek historian Megasthenes, he states that news had come to Alexander that if they were to advance further up to the Ganges, that the ruler across the Ganges River had 4,000 elephants and was waiting for Alexander with an army of 4,000 elephants. So it was one thing to defeat an army of 80 elephants. And although the Macedonians had actually defeated this army, they were really shaken up by this encounter. It was another to face an army of 4,000 elephants across the Ganges River. So no wonder that the Greek soldiers revolted. They refused to go any further. And Alexander retreated, went down the Indus, and then uh, began his very arduous march across uh, to Babylon uh, to overland, and um, taking with him actually some of his elephants, which he actually used uh, uh, you know, for ceremonial purposes. But the interesting point, and here is again, I think historians have doubted the veracity of the story. But, uh, uh, you know, but certain history, I mean, uh, basically Megasthenes is very clear about this, that there was, uh, you know, the, the soldiers revolted when they heard the news that the army in the Gangetic Basin, the Gangari Day, the, the king was, you know, had an army of 4,000 elephants. And H.H. Um, Scullard, who has written a very interesting book on the elephant in the, uh, in the Greek and Roman world, actually concurs with, with this view. And um, therefore, perhaps, you know, the fact that um, the kings in India had, the, the, the Nandas and the Mauryas had very large elephant army, perhaps saved India from uh, uh, Greek invasion, uh, you know, more than 2,000 years ago. Um, soon after Alexander uh, um, retreated from, uh, from Northwest India, I think uh, the, 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 the Indo-Gadgetic Basin had already been populated by, by the Aryan people now. And um, the population of India is estimated to be perhaps as much as 50 million people you know, and in the Indo-Gangetic Basin during that period. And um, this was the, the period of the Mauryas. Uh, Chandragupta Maurya had overthrown uh, the last of the Nanda kings. And um, elephants were still plentiful along the Himalayan foothills. So uh, elephants were captured probably in very large numbers. And uh, Kalinga in Orissa, you know, there's uh, over to the uh, you know, in in, uh, in East uh, Central India. And possibly the elephant culture, in terms of the total numbers of elephants in the army, in an army, reached a, a peak during the Mauryan period, during Chandragupta's period. Because again, from the Greek sources, we have it that Chandragupta Maurya had 9,000 elephants in his army. And again, you know, uh, historians have doubted the, the veracity of these reports. But I would still argue that um, given the fact that um, this was the land of the elephant, that you had you know, a very, very large, huge elephant population along the Himalayan foothills in Kalinga in, in, in southern India and so on. It is very well possible that exploitation, over-exploitation for a short uh, time period could certainly have made it possible for ancient Indian armies to maintain such large numbers. Now, the, during the Arthasastra, uh, the, the Mauryan period is also famous for a, a remarkable uh, document called the Arthasastra. The Arthasastra is um, attributed to Chandragupta Maurya's uh, minister, chief minister, called Chanakya or Kautilya. And this is a manual of statecraft, um, It's actually a remarkable document, which is, uh, was translated only during the 20th century. It tells you, it essentially tells a kingdom, uh, a king how to rule a kingdom. 
you know, setting up an elaborate system of, of spies and, uh, you know, and you, know, you really have the basic essence of administration of a kingdom in the Arthasastra. But to me, the Arthasastra also provides the earliest evidence for protection of elephants, for protection of elephants. Kautilya advocates, he exhorts the king to set up sanctuaries for the protection of elephants. These are called Gajavanas. Gajavana, uh, Gaja is an elephant and a vana is a forest. So the Arthasastra exhorts the ruler to set up Gajavanas for the protection of elephants. And these Gajavanas are to be ruled by a superintendent of the elephant forest and by guards. And uh, anyone killing an elephant would receive the death penalty. And Kautilya is very clear about it. But Kautilya goes on to say that some teachers say that land with productive forests is preferable to land with elephants because it's a source for a variety of materials. So a land with productive forests is like, you know, we are using a forest for logging, for instance, for timber. You know, the kind of contemporary debates that we have today over conservation as to whether you need to keep a land, a forest aside, set aside for protection of wildlife or for exploitation, for timber, for instance. I think this is something very, very similar. This is you know, very, very familiar, the kind of argument that Kautilya put forth. But he says, the, while the elephant forest can only supply elephants, that's, that's the argument that people made. However, Kautilya disagrees. One can create productive forests on many types of land, but not elephant forests. So what he's saying is you can go and lace plantations somewhere else, but you need to protect your elephant forests. And here is the real the reason why he says that. For one depends on elephants for the destruction of an enemy's forces. So this is very, very clear. Elephants were useful to the king's army, period. There is no hint of sentiment at all in the Arthasastra about why you need to protect elephants. In fact, I read the whole Arthasastra and I found only one sentence where there is a hint of sentiment. At one passage, Kautilya says, you can catch an elephant cub to play with it. Okay, so that's the only hint of sentiment. So very utilitarian view of conservation, uh, supply of elephants for the king's army. Now, I've not put up another slide on this, but there is a paradigm shift by the time we come to the 12th century, where during the period of the Chalukyan rulers, the Western Chalukyan king, uh, Somadeva, who wrote another document called, called Manasolosa. There is, uh, he again advocates, the Manasolosa again advocates that a ruler should set up, should protect elephants in forests. But then, there is a very interesting difference in this by the 12th century. And this is that you need to set up uh, I mean, you need to protect an, an elephant forest with the help of the local people. It doesn't say you set up a bureaucracy in terms of, uh, you, know, a you know, a superintendent of the elephant forest and guards and so on, and impose a death, death penalty on anyone killing, killing an elephant. But he says that you need to protect, a ruler needs to protect an elephant forest with the help of local people, the local tribes. This again, very interesting for me because this indicates a paradigm shift in conservation thinking. There's something like the debate going on today over whether a protected area the involvement of people, using people in management of protected areas, the so-called joint forest management or joint wildlife management. So these kinds of debates obviously also happened in ancient India in the course of uh, uh, the elaboration of the elephant culture and the protection of the elephant. Interestingly, when we talk about the, the sacred elephant, we think of Hinduism as the origin of the sacred elephant. Okay. But this is not necessarily true. It's not necessarily true. The origin of the sacred elephant actually goes back to Buddhism. And uh, the birth story of the Buddha, for instance, you know, that uh, his mother, the queen Maya, had a dream that a white elephant entered her womb. Um, and therefore, she conceived uh, Gautama, you know, 
And uh, therefore, this is very much a part of the, you know, the sacred elephant is very much a part of the conception story of the Buddha himself. And um, in fact, except for the Pasupati seal, that there's a hint of sacredness, and you know, it's not really Hindu, it's a, sort of the pre-Vedic period. Um, the earliest evidence that we have that the elephant became sacred was during the Buddhist period. And during Emperor Ashoka's time, Emperor Ashoka, who, who succeeded, uh, who actually uh, succeeded Chandragupta Maurya, was one of the successors of Chandragupta Maurya, uh, he, who converted to Buddhism, um, who enacted all these uh, different rock edicts where he prohibited the killing of animals and so on. He, um, in his rock edicts, you again, he, he, he actually elevates the elephant to supreme position called Gajatami. Okay, and this is the first such uh, depiction after Harappan times. Now this is, uh, I don't know if you can actually see this uh, rock uh, engraving of an elephant here. This is at a place called Kalsi. Kalsi is uh, very close to Dehradun in uh, northern India. And uh, below that is written here, in, you know, this is, this is Gajatami, the supreme elephant. And after his victory over Kalinga in uh, Bhuvaneshwar, he again had uh, visual, you know, a sculpture of the Supreme Elephant, uh, you know, carved out above one of his uh, rock edicts there. So the elephant first became sacred, you know, during the Buddhist period. And uh, the concept of the, the sacred white elephant, you know, permeates Buddhism everywhere. The Jataka stories, for instance, if you look at the Jataka stories, the Chaddanta Jataka is one of the very famous uh, Jataka stories in which the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, you know, the Bodhi, one of the Bodhisattvas appears in the form of a white elephant. The Bodhisattva appears in the form of a white elephant. And in this particular story, um, well, it's a, it's a long story, um, a, a queen sends a hunter out to go and kill the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva, uh, the sacred white elephant, actually has six tusks, three pairs of tusks. And therefore, the queen sends a hunter out to go and kill the Bodhisattva and, and, and get, uh, get the tusks for her. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, there is a, there's a long story to it. So when the hunter actually tries to uh, kill, the, kill the white elephant, uh, the Bodhisattva actually tells the hunter, you know, do not, do not worry, I, I, let, I, I'll harvest uh, my, my tusks and I'll, I'll give it to you. So the white elephant takes the saw from the, from the hunter and um, saws off its tusks and, and hands, hands it over to the hunter and the elephant dies and the white elephant dies in the process. Uh, and then finally the queen dies of, of, of remorse at uh, having just uh, done such an act. And this is something that is depicted again in a number of sculptures in all, all major Buddhist monuments. And this is a painting that uh, I have taken in the Ajanta Caves in, uh, in Western India. And it's actually a masterpiece. This, uh, this painting goes back about 1500 years. And uh, you know, it's actually a part of, part of the painting where Sonuratha, the hunter is, uh, you know, and the Bodhisattva is actually holding the tusk, is take, taken off the tusk and is handing over the tusk to the hunter. Okay, now let's look at uh, the uh, development of the elephant culture in the Hindu period. And I, from, in this, I will start from the extreme south of the country in the Tamil land. Now, many of you may actually recognize this as uh, the Arjuna's penance, the great, uh, great bas relief at Mahabalipuram, uh, very close to uh, Madras. Uh, Chennai in, uh, in eastern India. But this, of course, is a slightly later period. We can actually go back to an earlier period, the Sangam period. And um, the Sangam literature of the Tamils, which is dated variously as between 1st and 4th century uh, CE, common era, has a lot of references to elephants. Has a lot of references to elephants. I'll just take a few such references. 
For instance, it talks about the Chera land in the south. And there is this one particular passage which says, did this beautiful hill praise Andiran, who's a local chief. How is it this hill forest is full of male elephants? Okay. The hill tribes in the south at that time consumed elephant meat. At, by this time, um, the, there was a taboo on consumption of elephant meat in the north of the country. But in the south of the country, the hill tribes actually con consumed elephant meat, as this particular passage show, shows. At once, the hillmen removed the ivory and its flesh cooked for being eaten to the great eclat of the village folk. There's another very interesting passage which shows sort of deep observation of elephant behavior and, and uh, physiology and, and ecology. That is, there is a passage in the Tamil Sangam literature which says that an elephant suffers an abortion if it feeds on tender bamboo shoots. Now, to, to me as a biologist, that's very interesting because we know today that, that many plants, including bamboo, when they are very tender, the tender leaves have has actually high concentration of hydrogenic, uh, cyanogenic compounds, and uh, cyanide is, is, is a poison. So is it possible that uh, a female elephant that feeds on uh, very ten, tender bamboo sheets, uh, shoots would actually abort its uh, calf because it's, uh, it's taking in a, a set, uh, more than a, a critical quantity of, uh, of, uh, of a poison, for instance. But ultimately, the elephant, uh, uh, you know, in Hinduism, attended speak uh, in terms of its uh, cultural depiction, in terms of its you know, adoption by people uh, in the form of Ganesha. Not many people know that uh, the elephant-headed god Ganesha, as we know today the classical form of Ganesha, does not appear in the Ramayana of the Mahabharata. A lot of people think that Ganesha is very ancient, but Ganesha is not. There are no known images of Ganesha you know, before the beginning of the common era. And the earliest classical images of Ganesha date from not earlier than the third or the fourth century. And uh, literary references in the Puranas to Ganesha are also from the fifth century. And I'll just show you two of uh, the oldest images that I have managed to locate. Uh, these go back to the, to the Kushan period. One is in uh, uh, very close to Bhopal in a cave called Udaygiri, cave number six, where you have uh, one of the ancient depictions of Ganesha. And then the other I found in the Mathura Museum, uh, which again goes back to the Kushan period. And uh, now I've written a whole story about the origin of Ganesha and the ecological significance of Ganesha. But I will not uh, bore you with all the details. I'll be very brief. Um, I'll, I'll just try to summarize this in a gist. Um, the classical Ganesha as we know today is actually the culmination of a rather confusing process. And historians of religion have actually been very confused about what the antecedents of Ganesha are. How did Ganesha appear in this particular form around the fourth century or so? And the most uh, plausible explanation seems to be as follows, that we have an elephant-headed deity that was possibly a totem of Dravidian type tribes and associated with agrarian tribes. And uh, these are related to the Vinayakas. In fact, uh, in some of the ancient texts, you know, which go back before the Puranas, these, there are elephant-headed spirits called the Vinayakas, where these texts talk about <coughs> trying to appease these. These are not the benevolent deity Ganesha that we know today, that these are actually malevolent deities or spirits that had to be appeased in order to avoid personal ills. And eventually you have a process by which the Vinayakas are merged into a single Vinayaka appointed by Lord Shiva as the Ganapati Vinayaka or the leader of the Ganas. Now, historian of religion, uh, G.S. Gurie, 
he actually writes that a very radical transformation was needed to enthrone Ganesha, being the lord of obstacles. So you have these references to the elephant-headed spirit actually being the lord of obstacles or the creator of obstacles, not the remover of obstacles as we know today. And uh, all that he says is that such transformation in here in the very nature of early religio-magical systems. One who is the lord of anything can be trusted to control and subdue the thing he is the lord of. So Vinayaka, the troublemaker, becomes the much prayed to trouble averter, Ganesha. And he just stops with this, you know, not actually giving an explanation as to why we have Vinayaka converted to a Ganesha, you know, a complete transformation in, um, you know, in the, in the nature of uh, this god. I'll just uh, try to draw a parallel between what uh, factors might actually influence an animal being considered sacred. And I'll refer to the sacred cow, for instance, in India, which you all know about. Marvin Harris, an anthropologist at uh, Columbia University, who has written several books, including Cows, Pigs, Wars, and Witches, for instance, he traces the origin of sacred animals, such as the cow, and food taboos to the cost benefits of ecological processes. So at some stage, you know, because of the environment, because of climate, if the cost benefits are not in favor of utilizing a given species, you know, that would be otherwise useful, then you make that sacred. You protect that. And uh, he traces the origin of the sacred cow in this given fashion. He talks about the spread of Aryan settlements across the Indo-Gangetic Basin, intensification of production and population explosion, or about 2,000 years ago. At some stage, the cow became more useful alive than dead. It was useful as a source of milk, dung, and producing more cows and oxen to plow the fields when the rains arrived. And therefore, it was adaptive for a farmer to take a longer-term view of cost benefits, then to slaughter the cow for short-term gains. Okay. So my explanation is something parallel to this. At some stage, the elephant was most, more useful alive than dead, useful in the armies of the rulers, the Aryan rulers of the Indo-Gangetic Basin. And therefore, you elevate now the elephant to, so, to the to status of a sacred animal, and you prohibit the killing of the animal. So, the Arthasastra, for instance, definitely clearly says that elephants have to be protected. The elephants are needed in the king's army. Therefore, it's very easy to see that the elite of the Aryan society eventually elevated the elephant to sacred status because then elephants could be protected and the elephants were needed by the king for use in the king's army. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to skip all of this. And uh, right. So, on the other hand, there may ha actually have been a conflict in ancient India between those who are, who are advocating that the elephant had to be protected and for those who, for whom the elephant was a positive nuisance. Because elephants, as we know, have, since time immemorial, caused damage to agricultural crops, it has killed people. There are references in the Gajasastra, for instance, to elephants uh, causing damage to agricultural crops and uh, being a burden to people. But eventually, I think the desire of the rulers and the kings and the elite of Aryan society finally overcame the arguments, like even today that we have these kinds of debates in contemporary India, that people, tribes, small farmers who are cultivating uh, you know, small plots of land in the forest, for, that, for them the elephant is a nuisance. The elephant is sacred, the elephant is uh, a species to be protected for us from, from the urban areas, from the cities, where we are not affected by the impact of elephants. But, so I would surmise that eventually once the elephant became more useful, um, alive in the armies of these rulers than dead, 
the elephant became a very positive source, and how it's easy to see how the elephant became sacred. And we have parallels with today's conflicts over conservation. So eventually, I would term Ganesha as a deity born out of conflict. You can see the symbols associated with Ganesha, the sugar cane, the radish, the bowl of sweets. Okay, Ganesha has an enormous appetite, the elephant-headed god, which is also true with the wild elephant. Elephants would, I mean, millions and millions of farmers today are affected by wild elephants. And uh, eventually a tribal elephant, uh, a tribal elephant-related de deity was incorporated into the Vedic traditions, a recurring theme which, uh, in Brahminical Hinduism. Okay, I'll skip this. In, but something very interesting happens as, as Ganesha spreads out of India. You know, uh, Ganesha spread out of India uh, with, uh, you know, with Buddhist monks traveling out to, into Tibet and into China. Um, as I said earlier, the sacredness of elephants first appears in Buddhist India. And post sixth century, the sacred elephant in the form of the Hindu god Ganesha spread into ancient Tibetan Southeast Asia. However, Ganesha takes on a tantric nature in China. It takes on a, a very negative, it has a very negative connotation in China. And the positive sacred elephant of Buddhist Ashoka fails to define the tantric elephant-headed deity, a negative force requiring propitiation of China in contrast to the negative Vinayaka being transformed into the positive Ganesha of Hindu India. I think this is something extremely interesting, something that has happened that elephants started off being a sacred symbol in Buddhism, but became a, a negative symbol in Buddhism, you know, took on a tantric form. And on the other hand, the elephant-headed god started off as Vinayaka, a negative form, and finally was transformed into a positive form of Ganesha in Hindu India. So that is this, uh, you know, dual nature of the deity and this, you know, sort of sudden shift in the way that both Buddhism and Hinduism have actually looked at, uh, looked at the elephant over time. I will just put up uh, one slide to show the, the negative aspect of the elephant-headed god. And this comes from, uh, from uh, Buddhist Nepal, where a pundit was performing special rites on the banks of the river Bhagmati, and Ganesh, wishing to prevent the pious Buddhist from attaining Siddhi, put insurmountable obstacles in the place, uh, in the way. The pundit invoked the Buddhist destroyer of obstacles, who appeared in the form of Vignantaka, and Ganesha was overcome. So you'll actually see in the sculpture, Ganesha is actually being trampled. Ganesha is actually being trampled by the Buddhist destroyer of obstacles, Vignantaka. So the way that Ganesha has been considered in sort of Buddhist Asia is rather different from the way it has been considered in initially in, in Buddhism in India and now in Hindu India. Okay. Now, leaving Hinduism and Buddhism, let us come to the, uh, the, the Islamic period. This is a very, very long history, the Islamic period, and I really can't do justice to this in a talk of, of this nature. So I'm just only putting up one slide. Uh, I, um, the Islamic invasions of India started around 1,000 years ago, around 1,000 CE. And eventually, the rulers, the Islamic conquerors of India, adopted the elephant culture of the subcontinent. And in fact, the historian A.L. Basham actually makes a statement, and I'll read this out. Um, open, uh, the great reliance placed on elephants was, from the practical point of view, unfortunate. The pathetic Indian faith in the elephants' fighting qualities was inherited by the Muslim conquerors, who, after a few generations in India, 
became almost as reliant on elephants as the Hindus and suffered at the hands of, at the hands of armies without elephants in just the same way. This is because simply having elephants in one's army did not guarantee success necessarily. In fact, um, it was, I mean, through, through history it has been shown that cavalry was superior, superior um, you know, to elephantry you know, when it came to uh, uh, fighting a battle. Although some historians do not fully concur with this view, still the, 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 the evidence generally points towards cavalry being superior uh, to elephantry. And uh, there have been very many battles uh, through in ancient India where clearly the, the you know, horse-based uh, army eventually scored over a, uh, an army that relied heavily on elephants. Um, I've just come to the Mughal period where uh, the Mughal rulers, especially Akbar, was a connoisseur of elephants. In fact, Akbar's uh, chronicler, Abul Fasal, he writes that he, that is Akbar, rode more than 100 elephants in Mast. Elephants which had killed their drivers, their mouths, and were men slayers, and were capable of smiting a city or perturbing an army and engage them in fighting. I mean, if there's one sport in that Akbar, the Emperor Akbar, Mughal Emperor Akbar, rebelled in, it was to try and tame an elephant in Mast. A very, very dangerous sport, I can assure you. But this is what he wanted to do. And he seemed to be very successful in this. Now, we know that the Mughals hunted elephants. But interestingly, when you read the Akbar Nama and the Aini Akbari, you see that the Mughals did not kill elephants. The elephant hunts of the Mughals refer to the capture of elephants for use in their armies. So the, the Muslim rulers also had a passion for keeping elephants in their army, as, just as the Hindu rulers earlier did. And they built up huge elephant armies, huge elephant armies. But Jahangir, who, you know, one of the successors of, after Akbar, had 9,000 elephants in his army, and a total of estimated 40,000 elephants in his kingdom. Now, this is not, it's not very clear whether the 40,000 elephants refers to both captive and wild elephants, but even you know, if they refer to both captive and wild elephants, if you consider that the Mughal Empire did not extend to the extreme south of the country, which had elephants, and to the northeast of the country, like Assam and so on, which had abundant elephant population, there's a considerable number of elephants, 40,000 elephants. But I think the most interesting thing to me is that the Islamic rulers seem to have respected the prevailing sentiments in the subcontinent of the sacred elephant, and they did not go and kill elephants. They captured elephants, the elephant hunts. There are several elephant hunts described in the Aini Akbari and the Akbar Nama, and these refer to capture of elephants for use in the army. I then come to the British period, where the British, beginning the mid-19th century, set up the forest department under a German forester. And these were the forest, uh, the forest service was set up to essentially to work the forests of India and Burma, and to for supply of timber, especially teak, for railways and shipyards. And the elephants were used extensively in logging teak forests. I think a notable achievement during the British period was that a more scientific system of management of the elephant came in. We had uh, William Gilchrist, who during the early 19th century actually wrote a monograph on elephant diseases and treatment of de diseases. Probably the first such monograph after the Gajasastra. The first such uh, formal body of knowledge, scientific knowledge, based on the emerging European um, you know, science of, of veterinary medicine, you know, mainly based on cattle and horse and so on. But they used that knowledge to try and build up a scientific body of literature on elephants, on, on elephant diseases, on treatment of elephants, on the diseases, 
reducing uh, mortality rates in elephants and so on. The British also set up game preserves to ensure protection of animals hunted for sport. And this is very interesting because for at least 2,000 years, I mean, we know that the people of the Tamil land, the Sangam literature talk about, talks about the hill tribes going and killing elephants for consuming the elephant meat. But the whole concept of hunting for fun or sport hunting was completely alien to the Indian ethos. And this was a very un, rather dishonorable facet of um, the elephant culture that was introduced by the British during the colonial period. And historian, I'll just quote uh, um, historian John Mackenzie. He inter interprets big game hunting as a contemporary rediscovery of medie medieval chivalry linked to ritualized warfare and killing. And in the process, it's not just the elephant that suffered. To a certain extent, there was one major Rogers in Sri Lanka who actually killed something like 4,000 elephants. There was a Fletcher in who killed 300 elephants, including cows and calves in, in Wynard. Now, interestingly, the local people who have suffered from the ravages of elephants may have actually viewed this very positively. To them, probably the British were the saviors, the hunters were the saviors, because they eliminated the elephants, and therefore they reduced elephant-human conflicts. They saved their crops from the ravages of elephants, perhaps. But in the process, actually other species suffered even more. The tiger, the leopard, the wolf. The records actually show that 75,000 wolves were hunted over a period of, uh, uh, from the mid uh, uh, 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. Something like uh, 40 or 50,000 tigers were hunted and something like 200,000 leopards were hunted. And these numbers are far, far greater than what we have the population of these species today. Fortunately, the elephant was resilient. The elephant was resilient. In spite of the captures in large numbers for logging, in spite of uh, elephants being killed, the elephant still managed to survive. I'll just uh, briefly refer to another interesting role of the elephant in Indian politics and Indian, uh, you know, finally I would say Indian independence. Bal Gangadhar Tilak, an Indian nationalist leader who lived during the late 19th century and early 20th century, he actually converted Ganesha into a powerful symbol of resistance against the British. And uh, let me just read a couple of uh, passages from the British historians. M.M. Underhill, he wrote in 1921 that the growing interest among students in politics and the adoption of Ganesha as their patron god have united to connect him closely with the nationalist movement. It's a very interesting use of the elephant as an icon of resistance against the British. Mount Stuart Elephantstone, who was the British, British governor of Mumbai, Bombay in those days, was even more, more forthright when he wrote one talisman, that is Ganesha, that while it animated and united them all, could leave us without a single adherent. This barbarism is the name of religion, a power so, ob so obvious that it is astonishing that our enemies have not more frequently and systematically employed it against us." Close quotes. Therefore, I would say that India's independence can be termed as the triumph of the nationalist elephant over the imperial lion. But sadly, after Indian independence, you know, I'm sure you can take a guess as to which animal became the national animal of the country. It was the lion, it was the Asiatic lion, the Indian lion that became, was chosen as the, as the national animal. It was not the elephant. Even though a very, you know, a, uh, an Indian naturalist, M. Krishnan, actually argued that the elephant was truly the pan-Asian a pan-Indian pan species, and it was fit to be the national symbol. 
and not the lion. But they made the lion the national symbol. And later they, became, they, they made the tiger as the national, national animal today. But I would even argue against the tiger simply because I've argued this with my tiger friends who are, you know, we have to be very careful with uh, tiger conservationists and biologists because they're far more aggressive than a poor herbivore biologist like myself. But I told them that tiger actually is not native to India. The tiger came in during the Pleistocene time from China. Therefore, do you think that the tiger should be the national animal of India? It should actually be the elephant. So I'm planning to start a small campaign to try to make the, <laughs> reinstate the elephant as the national animal of India. And uh, oh, hopefully it'll succeed. Now, the post-independent period, it's a very long story. I could give an entire lecture on this, and therefore I will not attempt to do that. These four major factors we had to take into consideration post-independence. In Asia, I mean, from the middle, mid, mid of the 20th century, you know, the independence movement, India got independence, followed by a range of, you know, most of the other countries in Asia. And within five or six years or 10 years, um, um, or, or, you know, Asian countries was practically, um, uh, you know, um, the, 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 the colonial uh, yoke was off uh, all, the, all the Asian countries. But however, since then, when, when Asia became independent in the mid-20th century, uh, for the political rulers, the prime consideration was economic development, because Asia was a very, very poor region. So one of the most popular regions, uh, populous regions in the, in the world, extremely poor. And therefore, in the process uh, of economic development, Asia has lost a, lo a lot of its forests. It's Malaysia or Indonesia, or, you know, even India to a lesser extent. Uh, Burma probably is one country that still maintains a fair, a, fair, a fair proportion of its forest still. But loss and fragmentation of the habitat has been a major conservation issue for the elephant. This has resulted in escalated elephant-human conflicts over agriculture. Especially when you have fragmentation of habitat, elephants have to move from one forest patch to another forest patch, and in the process, they come into conflict with people. India alone, about 300 people are killed each year by wild elephants. Uh, starting around 1975 or so, we have had poaching of the male elephants for ivory, mainly to uh, feed the markets in Japan, and then later on, uh, China to a, to a lesser extent. And finally, we have had the crisis of the captive elephant. I think the captive elephant is going through a lot of transformation today because logging is banned in, in uh, Thailand. Logging is banned in India. In Thailand, the, uh, many of the elephants lost their jobs in the logging industry. They started coming into the streets of Bangkok for begging, for use as, uh, you know, in tourist shows and so on. And um, very often, the ownership of elephants passed on from people who you know, were very close to elephants you know, ethnic tribes and so on, who had a close relationship with elephants, it's moved on to business people, who now see the elephant as a, as a cash cow, as it were, to, to generate revenues. And uh, therefore, the whole captive elephant situation in Asia, with the possible exception of Myanmar, is actually going through a major crisis today, and we are grappling this out to solve this issue. Finally, I'll just touch upon, I'll just take two minutes to talk about the elephant culture of Africa and the contrast with Asia. Now, it's not that the African elephant has not been a part of Asian African culture. It certainly has been a part of um, uh, you know, symbolism and metaphor in, in Africa, as much as in Asia. Um, we also know that um, the African elephant had been tamed because Hannibal's elephants, the 37 elephants that he took across the Alps, 36 of those were African elephants. You may ask what the 37th elephant was. It was probably an Indian, but I'll not elaborate on the story right now. Um, so we know that the African elephant had been tamed, was used, but this culture died out. 
I would argue that this culture died out in Africa because the, this elephant culture as we know it, the capture of elephants in large numbers for use in armies is associated with the rise of major republics and kingdoms. In Africa, this was not backed by the advantage of biogeography. This is what I would say. It is just a matter of accident. The Carthaginians had only a remnant elephant population to exploit, while the Egyptians did not have access to the vast populations of, of uh, the sub-Sahara. No major republics or kingdoms arose in sub-Saharan Africa when elephant cultures were, were on the ascent in Asia and the Mediterranean region. So if you look at where the major uh, the kingdoms were, Egypt, there are no elephants in, you know, in, in that region at all. So the Egyptians had no access to, to wild elephants to capture. The Carthaginians captured elephants in the region of the Atlas Mountains. It was a remnant population, a small population. They exploited it and they finished it off. It became extinct. And sub-Saharan Africa, there were no major civilizations, no major kingdoms, republics that arose. And therefore, it was only an accident of biogeography that I think that uh, the elephant culture continued to elaborate in Asia. Because in Asia, if you look at where the major civilizations arose, it was the Indus Valley civilization. It was also China, but I'll not deal with China right now because uh, the region of China where the major Chinese civilization arose in ancient times did not have many elephants. It had some elephants, but that was quickly exploited and finished off. But if you take South Asia and Southeast Asia, it had a very abundant elephant population. And therefore, ecologically, you could sustain captures of elephants in large numbers for use in armies for, for much longer time periods. And therefore, we have had this very long history, starting from the pre-Maurian, whatever, you know, period, and uh, until uh, maybe 100 years ago or so, when the use of elephants in the armies completely died out. South and Southeast Asia could ecologically sustain much, much higher levels of capture. And therefore, the elephant culture you know, really survived over such a long time period. So it's simply an accident of, of biogeography. And finally, to summarize, in Asia, rulers from the Mauryans to the Mughals captured elephants for the army. The British introduced sport hunting in addition to capturing them for logging. In Africa, on the other hand, the elephant was seen only as a resource to be exploited for the vast ivory trade that even funded the imperial expansion. In fact, the African elephant, if you recall, the, both the males and the females have tusks. So you can exploit not only the male, but also the females. And the Asian elephant, you can only exploit the male, because the female Asian elephants don't have tusks. Therefore, in Asia, the elephant was more useful alive than dead. In Africa, the elephant was more useful dead than alive. So this is the real Asian elephant contrast in, when it comes to the elephant-human relationship. And uh, this is the picture today that you see, the former distribution of the Asian elephant, and the very patchy and fragmented distribution today. And if I were to take a, a guess as to where the Asian elephant will be 10,000 years from now. Yesterday, I was at the Field Museum of, uh, at Chicago here, the Field Museum of Natural History. And this is a mammoth, actually, that became isolated on an island off the coast of Siberia about 11,000 years ago. And this was the size of the mammoth that when it got isolated on this island. And by 4,000 years ago, the mammoth had stunted, had dwarfed to this, to, to, to this extent. It had come from 11 feet in height to about 6 feet in height. And I think this is what will happen to the Asian elephant. Just, let, just look at this map. We are creating these islands now for the elephant, these patchy habitats for the elephant. So what would happen, and I would just make a very bold guess, that eventually 10,000 years from now, if you come, this is how the elephant would be, the Asian elephant would be. And uh, I may be, of course, completely wrong, and ho hopefully I'm completely wrong. But, uh, you know, but given the course of evolution, if 
you know, as long as humans don't intervene in, in the whole evolutionary process, this is where the elephant is headed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Questions? I was just, uh, I could ask many questions during the work period, <laughs> but the Islamic period, um, the adverse army was majority Hindu, as, as you may all know that, because the Bokal army that came from Northeast India, that's Northeast India, that's very uh, small army. So in order to survive in India, they had to build up an army so from, from locals, yeah, so from India. Or even build relationship with Hindu, right. Hindu families right. and maintain a large army. So that's the main reason for not trying to hurt the sentiments of, sentiments of uh, Hindu. So, thank you, thank you. That's a very interesting point that you made, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah, the painting elephants, I know, actually there are, um, I, I, I understand that there are, there are two kinds of people who, who try to get the elephants to do the painting. Um, some people try to train the elephant in a very gentle way. And what they do is they come and make strokes. So they are made to hold a paintbrush you know, with this color. And they take into a canvas. And they are trained. And they simply sit, you know, they you know, just splash colors on whatever, you know, strokes and so on. And then the designer then finally conceptualizes the design out of this. And I know somebody in New York who actually is very good at this. She's actually used these elephant uh, strokes and so on to conceptualize you know, a dress or a, a pillow cover and a bed sheet and so on. That's, that's one way of doing it. But I also hear, which is something I have not seen, is there are people who actually inflict a lot of cruelty in training these elephants to do this. So I don't know how, 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 how good an idea this is. Elephants actually showed painting other elephants. I was trying to discuss this with somebody very recently. You know, I was not very sure how authentic this is. And, uh, but I was told uh, that uh, there's a lot of cruelty in, you know, inflicted on the elephant to make it do certain things, which is not a, not, not a good idea at all. But the self-awareness thing that you mentioned, you know, there, is only, there has just been one or two experiments on this you know, in front of giant mirrors. And I'm hoping one, one of these days to actually get, get some more work done with some of my students on this. Uh, on this. Uh, some elephants seem to show an awareness of self, not, not all elephants, but one has to really experiment. You need to have giant mirrors, you need to have many elephants come and stand in front of the mirrors and see if they recognize themselves. Kahneman started a new project called Project Elephant. And I was a member of the task force that actually helped set up Project Elephant. So this is a conservation project that looks at elephants all, ac all across the country. And the idea is to try and uh, um, protect the habitat and the landscapes of the major elephant populations across the country. Uh, also mitigate elephant-human conflicts, protect elephants against poaching, look into captive elephant issues, and so on. So this project has gone on for about 18 years now. And uh, the center provides assistance to the states to implement conservation. But right now, we are doing an exercise of trying to evaluate what has actually happened in the last 18 years and come up with uh, ways of changing direction, you know, because it has been successful to only to a limited extent. Uh, we are trying to give a corrective course to Project Elephant now. Good. And I was curious as to why that Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. In fact, uh, elephants, certainly, I think the use of elephant in sport itself, you know, elephant 
uh, I, no, in this case, I was talking about a human going and killing an elephant. Elephants were certainly used uh, in sport. Uh, elephant, uh, you know, uh, pitched against an elephant in battle and so on. So that actually goes back to even the Chalukyan times. The Manasolasa, which I mentioned, you know, actually talks about uh, elephant sport. So that is at least a thousand years old. Uh, but the other thing that actually happened was that during the British period, that many of the Indian rulers also started imitating the British in going and hunting elephants. So some of the examples from Rajasthan may actually be that. I know for examples from Mysore also, where the Maharaja actually went and hunted elephants as sport. But that's because you have the British, you have the rulers, and you know, they are doing something and you have to be seen as equal to them. The Mughal period, no, I have not come across any, again, you know, elephant sport, yes. The elephant sport actually goes back, you know, even pre-Mughal pre period. So it goes back to at least 12th century. Uh, elephants being used in elephant races, elephants being used to fight, you know, two elephants being pitched in battle against each other. Akbar himself used to ride a must elephant and go and try to fight another must elephant and so on. Yes, that's right. But I'm talking about picking up a gun and directly killing it, just for sport. Again, elephants were, you know, the, the Tamil uh, people of the south hunted elephants for meat in the past and so on. something about the Kedah operations. The Kedah operations, OK. See, basically, there are two, uh, there are two types, uh, two methods in which elephants were captured. In the south, uh, the so-called Dravidian method was to dig pits and uh, put a lot of uh, leaves and uh, branches and so on to soften the fall of the elephant and capture it that way. So elephants were captured singly or in very small numbers. The Kedah was, uh, goes back to the, to the north. It is essentially the Aryan method of capturing elephants. And uh, you drive elephants, uh, entire herd of elephants, into a stockade. And so you sort of funnel the elephants through a narrow, narrow passage, let it get into a stockade, which is fully protected, and then drop the gates of the stockade. And the Kedah actually goes back at least 2,300 years, because Megasthenes talks about, gives a, gives a description of the Kedah method you know, during the Mauryan period. So the Kedah, the Kedah method is actually quite old. But the Kedahs was stopped in India in 1971. The last Kedah was in Kabini in Mysore. There's somebody who was working in, yeah, my friend, yeah, from Kabini. You know Mastigudi? The last Kedah was held in Mastigudi in uh, January 1971. And after that, the Kedahs were stopped. Yes, yes. Let's go over here. Uh, sorry. Yes, yes, sorry. Uh, Uh, the second question is? How did the elephants participate in fighting? How did the elephants participate in fighting? In the armies. How, how were they used? Okay. Oh, there are lots of elaborate descriptions of how elephants were used in the armies, you know. Um, it is, you know, it was used to mainly as a, um, you know, basically as a, bat as a battle tank to break down the enemy gates. It was used uh, as a mount uh, for the commander. It was used to, uh, you know, elephants had howdahs and towers fitted on them from which you would have soldiers who would be firing arrows from the, from the top of an elephant. But it was mainly used for the psychological effect on the, on the, the psychological effect on the, on the enemy. Because to see a large, well, a very large animal, and very often, you know, horses, for instance, would get frightened of elephants and would not come close to elephants and so on. There are very elaborate descriptions of the war elephant. It'd be too detailed for me to actually get into details of that. You would have somebody on the elephant. You would have somebody on the elephant. 
but that also made him a sitting duck because he could easily pick off a, a commander sitting. So if a king was perched on an elephant, he would be on the grandest elephant. It would also be very easy to pick him off and you know, send an arrow through him. And once he fell down, then the, the commander is gone. So the rest of the soldiers would think, oh, the war is already lost because the king, the king is dead. And then they would all flee. So that, that was a very typical happening in all these uh, wars in which elephants were used in very large numbers. So more often it ended in defeat of an elephant, uh, elephant-based army rather than, than victory in most cases. So your first question about why I started uh, historical research. And what, what particularly appealed to you as you did the research? No, I, okay. No, I, I don't know. I mean, one is that I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in history and archaeology and, and the past. Because I think if you had to understand the present and the future, I think you really need to have a good understanding of the past. What fascinated me is that, um, I mean, I think there are several things that, uh, one is that a number of the issues that we are talking about today in terms of elephant biology or conservation and so on, are things that have already, you know, that are, these are, these are issues that also came up in ancient times. And uh, that was one. And secondly, for me, the, the visual depiction of an elephant, I'm also an artist of sorts in, in that I'm a photographer. I like to do photography. And therefore, to me, I mean, it also appealed to me that I like to, I learned about Indian history, about Asian history. I went to Sri Lanka, I went to Indonesia, I went to Cambodia, I went to China, Yunnan. Uh, uh, there's an elephant culture in Yunnan, by the way, you know, in the, and so on. So I, I learned a lot. It was a, a learning process for me. And once you're doing science and you're doing statistics and you're doing molecular genetics of the elephant or, you know, and so on. You have lots of data and you are doing all the work sitting in front of the computer. I think this was a very welcome diversion for me. It sort of broadened my horizon, so. Okay, we have time for one final question. Okay. Uh, Professor, you, you, you made, a, you, you give us a wonderful presentation. You talk about, you know, the elephant and the civilization of India, you know, history, evolution of India. But I want to know something about, you know, government and non-government function in the protection of the elephant in your country. Do you think, you know, I, once I watched a TV, you know, in India, there is a black market, some people killed, you know, the elephant and sell the ivory to the black market. I, I want to know the India government or the non-government non organization has made some regulations and laws. Right. Right. First thing is when you look at Indian laws to protect elephants, they're very strict. I mean, laws for protection of animals is probably the strictest in India of any country in the world. And I'm not uh, exaggerating when I say this. India has a very, very preservationist view of things. You can't, you know, when you come to India, you can't kill anything apart from maybe rats and uh, crows or something of the sort. You can't touch anything in India. Uh, but that's, that's the, you know, on paper, that's the view. I think by and large, it's also observed to a large extent. Now, uh, when you talk about trade in elephants, India was the largest importer of African ivory 100 years ago. Between the mid 20th century and the middle uh, and the time of Indian independence, India annually imported 250 tons of African ivory. Some of this ivory for, 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 went further to other Asian countries, including China. Much of the ivory went, went, uh, was exported to Europe. And in India, there was a class of ivory carvers, master craftsmen, who used to carve ivory as, as an expression of art. So a lot of the ivory that you see in India is actually African ivory, imported. Then came the 1989 ban. But Indian elephants started uh, getting poached because 
the Indian government after independence imposed customs duties on imports of African ivory. And therefore, the landed cost of African ivory became very expensive. And therefore, the uh, craftsmen started patronizing, purchasing ivory from poached Indian elephants. But it's fairly under control today. The damage has been done in some areas. But the heartening thing about elephants in India is that the elephant population in India is going up. The last 25 years, the last 25, 30 years, I've been studying elephants. My considered opinion is that, uh, I mean, estimate is that the elephant population has gone from about 20,000 to about 28,000 overall. So numbers-wise, we are not, it's not a problem in India. The problem is that of space. But we still have about 110,000 square kilometers of forest area in which elephants are found today. So that's to give you a perspective. Now, government has, uh, has this elephant conservation project called Project Elephant. A number of NGOs are working on elephant conservation in India, a number of NGOs today. They work on various issues of elephant corridors, of ivory poaching. And I have actually, I'm associated with two of the NGOs that actually do a lot of elephant conservation work. I'd like to ask that we continue the conversation over the reception in the back of the room and then we thank <laughs> Professor Sukumar.